0: Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it.
1: Uh, and welcome to our new series in Matthew. Um, we are starting this new section, as Jonathan said, of Matthew uh, this week, which runs right from chapter 19 through to chapter 25. Uh, we're not going to have time to preach through to chapter 25 until some point next year. Um, this term just simply doesn't have enough weeks. Uh, but we should be thinking of our section uh, as including chapters 24 and 25, um, as that is how Matthew organized his material for us. He's got these five big sections. This is the fifth one, um, each with action followed by a, a big bunch of teaching. Um, last term, we finished that, uh, la- that fourth section, finishing in chapter 18. This is the last big section of action followed by teaching. And this this new section, which, strictly speaking, begins at verse 3, put very simply, is a fight. Uh, It centers around the rejection of Jesus by old Israel, by the Pharisees. And I want to ask, what do we expect to happen? Well, spoiler alert, uh, Jesus comprehensively wins the fight, um, even though He ends up being killed by the Pharisees. That can feel a bit confusing, can't it? But you see, God lets them kill his son so that Jesus can become God's cornerstone of his new kingdom. That's our memory verse. And so the world, therefore, becomes totally binary. It's totally binary. You're either with Jesus or you're with the Pharisees, ultimately against Jesus. Uh, Think the sheep and the goats, which is where we'll land in chapters 24 and 25. So it's a big fight. uh, And that's the section, if you like, in a nutshell. Um, A fight that Jesus looks to lose, but ultimately wins. And that fight, uh, it's set up in in motion immediately in verse 3. Look down with me. And Jesus came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him. Uh, Testing, uh, it's... The start of the fight, an examination. Uh, Truth be told, it's actually a trap. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Um, It is, in fact, precisely what Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of the gospel. Uh, There's real snake venom here. Uh, We should feel the impending doom of a fight to the death. Uh, Yet we could have predicted that, actually, from verse 1, as Jesus is back in the region of Judea. I mean, what should we expect to happen in Judea? Well, this is a kind of deja vu moment. We've got a man of God who's in Judea at the start of a section. It's an almost direct replay of John the Baptist from the start of chapter 14, where we were in April. Remember what happened to John? Well, he was beheaded brutally. In fact, Jesus has already told us, chapter 17, verse 12, that we should expect exactly the same thing to happen to John, to happen to Jesus, and to happen to us who follow. So Jesus is deliberately entering into Judea, whose capital city is Jerusalem, knowing precisely what is coming his way. Tests. And the test here, it's immediate. Let's look at how the test goes. Verse 3, this is the start of the test. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The Pharisees want to get specific about getting divorced, and so they ask him a very straight question. But the question presumes a very liberal view of marriage. Did you spot that? Divorce for any reason, or more literally, every cause. Be that the wife burns a meal, or the husband doesn't find her attractive anymore, or indeed just wants out for no particular reason. So why is this question a test? Why? Well, it is bound to to divide the crowds, isn't it? And have Jesus' popularity plummet. It's not rocket science, it's blatant political manoeuvring. Pin him on a contentious subject, he'll lose at least some of his voters. Uh, Contentious subjects, they always have that effect. It's politics 101, isn't it? And Jesus' answer to the religious elite is frankly patronizing. Verse 4, have you not read... And then he goes on to quote from Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, it is unthinkable that any Pharisee wouldn't have read this. Haven't you read the first two pages of your foundational book? Of course they have. They just don't think it would be that simple. But Jesus takes them back to nursery lessons, back to key stage one, back to the beginning. Though actually what Jesus does here is very profound. And is what it is what one should always do when doing any theology. He goes to the principles of scripture and not to a problem passage, which is what the Pharisees do next when they pull up Deuteronomy 24. Jesus goes to the principles of marriage and he turns into Genesis, he turns up Genesis 1 and 2, the foundations of marriage and the definition given to us there so Jesus' answer to the question on lawfulness of divorce is simply to define marriage for us. So let's examine how Jesus and God defines marriage. This is marriage according to Jesus. Marriage is firstly uh, between male and female, verse 4. Two individuals who are made in the image of God, who are equal in dignity and value, yet who both hold all the beautiful complementary differences. Given to male and female by God. So it's between a male and a female. Secondly, though, it's also public. Start of verse five a man shall leave his mother, father, and mother, and hold fast to his wife. So it's never done secretly with all the vulnerability which that will inevitably bring, but rather with full knowledge of both the families and the communities and everyone they know as they set up life together. So it's between a male and female. It's public. And thirdly, it's exclusive. You see that end of verse 5 and the start of verse 6. Exclusive as the two become one. No room for lots of partners moving from one bed to another, leaving behind all the emotional damage. But that, that obviously brings with it. This is total commitment to one another. One flesh. So it's between a male and female. It's, it's public. It's exclusive. And fourthly, it is also permanent. Permanent. End of verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, we say that actually, don't we? At the the climax of our marriage services, I was at a wedding yesterday and that was exactly what was said. They got married and that was the the phrase that was then said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's in the vows, isn't it? Until death parts us. So it's permanent. So we might ask, how does Jesus' definition of marriage answer the Pharisees' testing liberally slanted question on divorce. And I think it goes something like this. Um, Sure, uh, Moses, he gave room for a certificate of divorce, which we'll come to in a moment. But that was never ever the intention of marriage. And it certainly shouldn't ever be the expectation. Um, Even though there is a provision for divorce, marriage was always meant To be a picture of forever faithfulness. And it's worth just pausing and realizing just how good this design is. Because imagine if we lived in a world that had marriages like this, that every marriage was like this. There would be no more suspicion, no more betrayals, no more painful, drawn out separations. There'll be no sexually transmitted diseases. There'll be no kids being dragged in two opposite directions by parents who can't speak to each other. I mean, it would be really beautiful, wouldn't it, if if we could do this? Yet, of course, uh, you and I know far too well, I'm sure, that this is not the world that we live in, right? Divorce is just a part of our society, isn't it? It's so common and it's always so painfully sad. You don't need me to tell you of the pain and the heartache that every single divorce brings. It ruins everybody connected to that couple in some way, shape or form. And let's just pause for a moment. I mean, some of the divorces that we know of, they may well have ended due to exceptions that the Bible does give, uh, like adultery, which is the exception given here in verse 9, or perhaps um, abuse or abandonment, which is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But if you have suffered from that kind of pain of being connected with a divorce in some kind, please, can I ask you not to suffer alone? Um, Find a Christian friend to share that pain with. I know it won't fix it, um, but it will help. Um, You you don't have to suffer that kind of pain alone. And let's be really clear, really clear, even within those exceptional circumstances which the Bible does give, where divorce is permitted uh, and notice not mandatory, That was never, ever supposed to be what marriage is actually about. So we dive back in. As we mentioned, and as we might expect, knowing the Pharisees' testing intentions, they seize upon an obvious perceived (laughs) discrepancy. Verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Um, In other words, how does Genesis 2... Uh, interact with Deuteronomy 24, where Moses allows for a divorce. And Jesus cuts through the complexities with such ease. I love that about Jesus, that uh, there's no faffing around. Uh, Jesus doesn't engage with the fact that the Pharisees' summary of Deuteronomy 24 isn't fair. There's certainly no command from Moses, really just an allowance to minimize the damage of divorce, which I suspect was already taking place. No, Jesus goes to the real reason behind it all. Read this carefully with me. Verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus' point is so exposing. It was the hardness of the human heart. The fact divorce exists is a pointer not to divine approval, but to human sinfulness. Though, did you spot, um, who is Jesus referring to here? In other words, um, who is the your in this verse, the your hardness of heart? Because in one sense, it is all human hardness of heart. It's the universal problem of mankind. Humanity's hearts are so hard that without exception, we all rebel against God's good word. But in a very real sense, the your here is very specifically the Pharisees, um, who we could call old Israel, whom God originally chose. So, Israel. It was for your hardness of heart, for your refusal to listen, for your rejection of God. It was written into your law. Which brings us to two questions that I've been puzzling over. And strap your thinking caps on here because this is a bit tricky. But I think it's key to what's going on. Here's the two questions I've been thinking about. Firstly, why do we need this teaching on marriage here? Jesus has already taught on sex and marriage so sufficiently back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, is this just Jesus' way of exposing any culture? I mean, that sexual morality is just an inevitability when one rejects God? Is um, Is it, as one Christian social commentator rightly puts it, Today's sexual attitudes betray yesterday's rejection of God? Certainly, that must be true in part. But it can't be a sufficient answer. This isn't just a random bit of teaching on sex in the middle of a book which has already dealt with it so sufficiently. So that's the first question to think about. Why do we need this teaching on marriage here? But secondly also, why are we back with the Pharisees again. And Jesus has so dramatically left them back in chapter 16, verse 4. And aren't we already done with them? So in short, why has Matthew brought the sexual ethics and the Pharisees together in this moment? And here's my best shot, having wrestled this through for a while, And though I'd love to hear what you think of this later on. And I think this is what Jesus is showing us, that God is divorcing Israel. Um, There is, if you like, the great divorce that God has been forced into. Now, I know God isn't actually brought into the picture here explicitly, but actually I think there is more here than meets the eye initially. I mean, let me read for you how Jesus last described Israel in that dramatic moment of leaving them. Chapter 16, verse 4. He calls them... Adulterous. Adulterous. It's a very specific way that only Matthew uses to describe Israel. Israel are uniquely adulterous in this gospel. And let's consider the language certificate of divorce that the Pharisees mention in verse 7. Did you know the Old Testament only ever uses that phrase, certificate of divorce, to describe just one relationship? And that relationship is that of God's relationship to Israel. I mean, Jeremiah 3, he uses that exact language, the reference there on your sheet to look up later. But let me read for you just verse 8 of Jeremiah 3. This is God speaking, and God says, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. So do you see how it's all lining up? Sexual immorality, adultery, certificate of divorce. Is it possible that Matthew is lining these up for us to see Israel is the persistent whore who for centuries fearlessly abandoned God and is now being divorced by God and rightly so? It's as if Matthew's lining up all the pieces for us to put them all together. I'm sure we're talking about marriage and divorce generally, but there is a greater divorce taking place here. Adulterous Israel was, has played the whore, and so we witness the great divorce of all time. And this certainly fits perfectly with this new section of Matthew, and we'll see that God will not ignore his wife's persistent defilement. And Israel, you can test my son now all you like, but the divorce is in the post. Uh, It is signed, sealed and delivered. In fact, I think it's already happened. Uh, The new kingdom is now in full swing. People are flocking around the new king who you're making the eternal king by rejecting him. Friends, I don't know how you're feeling, but I think this is absolutely shocking. For all that marriage is supposed to last, supposed to be permanent, that was Jesus' point, some do obviously regrettably end in divorce. And so we've almost stumbled upon the perfect illustration, the illustration of God and his people, old Israel. The greatest divorce of all time. God will divorce his beloved bride, Israel, that he fought so hard for. Enough's enough. Marriages, they can end. Indeed, God's marriage to Israel is now over. But our passage, it doesn't end on adultery, which leads to divorce. So we, we now go from the great divorce um, to the great marriage, which is where verses 10 to 12 come in. And, let, and let's be honest, uh, this bit's a bit hard to get hold of. So let's listen up carefully. The disciples, they start talking about being single instead of marrying. Verse 10, logically, um, it's surely better not to marry, right, Jesus, after everything you've just said. The disciples are shocked at Jesus' radical teaching, on divorce. And so their logic is simply this if what you've just said is right, surely it's better not to get married. It sounds so hard to stay faithful for life. And that's certainly been the thought process actually in monastic traditions over the centuries, i.e., the truly spiritual are single forever, which can't quite be right, I think. Because verse 11 is correcting the disciples from verse 10. And crucially, Jesus, he doesn't backtrack on anything about marriage from earlier in the passage, from verses 4 to 9. So verse 11 says, true, singleness is not for everyone, which is kind of obvious, right? Not everyone stays single forever, and not everyone gets married. But it's useful for us to see Jesus He's positive here about both marriage and singleness. Um, Both are great gifts. um, And it's hard for us to get that right, I think. Um, To think that both are true at the same time. So easy to overvalue one over and against the other. But but just listen to how positively Jesus puts it in verse 12. Um, and, And verse 12, I admit, initially feels totally bonkers. Um, Why are we suddenly talking about eunuchs? I mean, eunuchs are a bit like nowadays. uh, It would have been a term which would have surprised and even shocked its hearers in the first century, though it's helpful for us to see and feel that, and that Jesus isn't talking about eunuchs literally throughout the whole verse. Um, See, there's three kinds of eunuchs in this verse. Uh, Look down with me at verse 12. Firstly, you could be a eunuch from birth. That is a physical defect of some kind, meaning that they are impotent, unable to procreate, that sort of eunuch. And secondly, you get others who have been made eunuchs. That is, to be frank, castrated for whatever reason. Interestingly, castrated individuals, they would have been banned from joining in with God's People, So it's a major implication to be that kind of eunuch. Um, you might be a eunuch for, um, for reasons such as um, if you served in the royal courts. And that's often a reason why you might be frustrated. But then there's this third category of eunuch, which can't be literal and must be illustrative for single people. They have made themselves eunuchs. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So this isn't a physical alteration, but arguably an even more radical decision. It's a choice not to get married, which is as radical, if not more so, than any of the other kinds of eunuchs. Jesus' illustration, it's showing us how radical these single people are. But did you see the reason why they have made themselves eunuchs? Did you read it? For the sake of the kingdom. Now, do we find it shocking? Shocking that somebody might choose to be single for life. I mean, can you even imagine the scenario? Marriage could be a real option for someone you know, but for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the kingdom, someone decides against that? I mean, those reasons could be varied. I think the passage isn't specific, but we could begin to daydream. It could be, for example, maybe somebody can only find others who aren't Christians to marry. Or maybe somebody is same-sex attracted. That's certainly a live one in our culture at the moment, isn't it? Um, Incidentally, we do have a group here, an an informal group here at St. Helens, who are, in that sense, eunuchs for life. Uh, Do ask me privately about that later if you'd like to know more about that group. But if we find it shocking, the thought of being single for life, well, that says a lot about our culture uh, both then and now actually i mean back then marriage uh, was how you secured your family i mean who would you pass your land onto how would your name go down the ages uh, what were you in society if you weren't married it was almost a religious duty to be a eunuch was to literally cut yourself off from god's people back then why would you choose that and nowadays, our culture, what, is it, what do we say? Well, marriage is still the hope for most families, isn't it? Although maybe for slightly different reasons. I mean, how many mums and grannies uh, lean over and ask their single 30-something relative that oh-so-misguided question? So is there a special somebody yet? Of course, marriage its not always possible, even for those who might want it. But what is significant here is that some will voluntarily not marry, which proves that according to Jesus, marriage is not the be-all and end-all that our society certainly tends towards, I think, both Christianly and non-Christianly speaking. There is something far greater, you see, going on, namely the kingdom of heaven. If you like putting what we've seen together today, we could say there is a marriage more important than human marriage, the marriage between God and his new people. So it could easily be worth staying single for that kind of marriage. If you like being single for the greatest marriage of all time, which is how Ben put it so rightly earlier. So as we come into land, there is... Far too much to say right now. So I lo- would love it if we all kept on talking about these things later. There's lots to be chewing through. But we must stop, first and foremost, to look at Jesus. In that sense, he's very much a eunuch. But also very much the bridegroom, as he was described earlier in Matthew's gospel. I mean, Jesus deliberately goes to Judah to approach Jerusalem to die for his bride. Jesus knows the cost of marital commitment, uh, the cost in this life for the sake of the great marriage of the next life. What does it take for the bride to be his? Well, it takes his rejection and, and his inevitable death. How beautiful! What a Lord we have! Now, a few other words. A word to those, who are, uh, of, of, those of us here who are married. Um, let's never, never listen to the world's definition of marriage. Uh, the world rejects God's word and are heading the way of old Israel. Listening to the world's view on marriage, it, it will be so dangerous for us. Um, stick with what God says about marriage. Um, we must all honour All of our marriages here, we must prize them and take them very seriously. Do everything we can to keep our married couples together. It's God's great design. And we must all strive towards the great marriage together. Never fix our eyes so low as to only view life in this world. And lose sight of what marriage is really actually for. And to those of us who are single, in a world that thinks you're barely human if you refrain from sex, I pray that we know that Jesus at least implied that your status as single is better. Did you spot that in verse 10? The disciples say it is better not to marry, and Jesus and he never corrects it. He just says, not everyone can receive this saying. In other words, it's hard. It's hard to receive this, but only to those whom it is given. And this is a promise from the Lord that there will always be confusion about singleness and marriage. And isn't that especially the case in our generation? We must work especially hard to get the balance right, I think. Singleness is not a holier state or a better way of doing ministry. But it's a unique saying that not everyone can accept. But if you are single, embrace it with two hands. It is currently God's plan for your life. Our world thinks you're nuts. Can I tell you that? You're like a eunuch. We think, though, we think that you're beautiful. And treasured in Jesus' sight. And we want you to know that you're precious here in this church. And we are sorry for when we don't make that explicitly clear all the time. We need to constantly work on that together, actually. When preparing this week, I asked a single friend here for some words to encourage you. They were so good that I'm going to read them all out for you. Um, The abstract kingdom of heaven idea is hard to grasp, but it's easier to think about Jesus. Is he worth it? He doesn't pretend that it's easy, it's not, and neither is marriage. There are some times when I find it harder than others, but the question isn't do I find it easy? But is Jesus worth it? I often wish I had a boyfriend, husband, kids. But most of the time, it's the Hollywood idealized version that I'm picturing, not a realistic one. And yet, even if the idealized version was genuinely on offer, they couldn't compare to Jesus. He is always better. So to conclude let's all remember and um, Jesus he came to Judah Judea sorry to fight for his bride for each one of us irrespective of our marital status and um, will we align ourselves with that fighter the Lord Jesus who divorced the adulterer Israel so that he could marry the eternal bride And that is us. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, that he came and fought for us. And that we can be his bride. When it comes to marriage and singleness, our thinking is just so muddled. So Lord, help us to think like you to hold both marriage and singleness as beautiful and good things, knowing that we're all heading to the best marriage in heaven together. And Father, we pray these things for your great glory. Amen.